I'll mention a couple of things before, as, before we get started here as, as people are settling in. Um, there's one handout over there, and I think I have the long, wrong number on there. Um, I think the numbers for the lessons kind of get janked up. I had number nine there. But anyway, Gospels and Acts, there's a handout over there. Secondly, last week I mentioned that if you happen to have this timeline that I've given out in various kind of classes, if you happen to have one of those with you, it's it's not a big deal this evening, but if you do, it might kind of help you all point at it. I've got a version of it up on the board, and I'll point at it a couple of times. If you don't have one with you, I've got or have one, I've got a few here if anyone would like one. Most of the young people at that end of the room could draw this on the board for you. Um, do you like one? Or? It's not a big deal if you don't have one, but... third item, when I did the other class on reading Old Testament narrative, I just kind of got derailed, and I had actually planned to give a homework assignment and had printed out a thing, but then it just got lost in the fog, so that's not a big deal. But for those um, who want to or for those that are required to because we're, uh, they're taking the class for credit... There's an assignment here. It's just simply assignment 16.1 in the textbook. But there is a, a handout here that just says that's what the homework is. Is anyone else dying for to do that? I'll mention again as we're settling in, in that homework assignment, it gives you the option of, I think, five different passages in Acts that you can apply the five steps of interpretation and application to. You might want to pick the passage. It's only three verses long so that you don't spend the next hundred hours working on your homework assignment. All right. Are there any comments or announcements or anything that I'm forgetting we need to make before we start? I guess not. We have apparently gone through some kind of time warp and the demographic of the class is changing gradually. It's getting younger and younger. Good to see you guys. All right, let's pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, we do thank you that you've not left us in the darkness that we brought upon ourselves, but you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. You've shown us the ugliness of, of what we've become because of our rebellion, but you've also shown us your grace. 
and shown us that you've provided a way of restoration, and we thank you for that, Lord. Lord, we recognize that these scriptures or how you've decided, one of the main ways you've decided to show yourself to us and how you would desire us to respond. So, Lord, I pray this evening that you would help us learn how to do that, and then we'd hear your word and respond to it, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um. Our assigned task this evening is to talk about Gospels and Acts in the New Testament and how to read them. And if you look at the main headings in your handout, we're going to do the same thing with Gospels and then we're going to do it with Acts. And that is basically we're going to address the question, what are the Gospels? What are they actually? And that will help us understand how they're written. And then once we understand that, then we can figure out, well, How are we going to read it? We need to know those things to understand how to read it. Then we're going to do the same thing with Acts. We're going to talk about, well, what is Acts? And how is it written? And that will help us know how to read it. For example, if you have a John Grisham novel versus a cookbook versus a physics textbook, you don't read those things the same way. And so that's why we're going to look at what these books are. So let's start with the Gospels. And I'm going to say that basically what all four of the Gospels are is that they are what we would call Gospel tracts. They're Gospel tracts. That is, that the Gospels are the good news about Jesus. And for those that are just... Like words, the last page of your notes are some charts about, I think probably most of you understand that evangelism and evangelist and all of those words and good news and gospel, those all mean the same thing. They're all derived from the same Greek word. So what the gospels are is they're the good news about Jesus and the purpose of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is to call people to respond to the claims of who Jesus is. That is, they're short tracks, and really they're short. We, you know, we call them, well, Mark is a book with 16 chapters. Well, no, it's not. It's a very short little book. It's only 15 or 20 pages. They're all pretty short. They're short tracks that show who Jesus is and what he has done and what he's doing and what he will do, written with the intent that people will respond by repenting and believe in Jesus and be reconciled to God. That's their purpose. That's why they were written. I kept thinking about Lee uh, as I was working on this lesson because he, he, when he does the evangelism class, he defines evangelism as something like um, sharing the gospel or informing people with the intent. How do you word it? I caught you flat foot. Yeah. Well, anyway, he knows the idea. He, he sometimes says it very concisely, something like um, informing people with, with intent to convince. In other words, the intention is that they'll respond by believing in the Lord. And that's what the gospel writers have done. And you don't have to make that up. John just says that. He says near the end of, his gospel, he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you can write 
a doctoral dissertation in seminary. No. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have eternal life. That's what they're for. Um, Luke says a similar thing at the beginning of his gospel. In one of the textbooks, they were called, they call the gospels Christological biography. That is, the point is who and what is Christ and a call to respond to that. Now, the significance of that is keeping in mind that the gospels are not primarily histories. They're not history books, although they contain a lot of history in them. That's not their purpose. Also, they're not primarily biographies. It's not the story of Jesus' life. There's all kinds of stuff we would like to know about Jesus and his life and growing up, what his brothers thought. That's not the purpose. Uh, Also, and this is my main thing about how to read it, the Gospels are not primarily encyclopedias of just individual sayings and deeds of Jesus that we can just look up individual entries when we're curious about something. Uh, They're not encyclopedias. Uh, That's not their purpose. So what else can we say about the Gospels? This is the second thing. The first one is that they're evangelistic tracts written with the purpose of informing people and and persuading them to believe in Jesus for eternal life. That's their purpose. Secondly, the Gospels, and I'm going to get up on my soapbox here, the Gospels are a continuation of the one story in the Bible. Uh, that begins in what we unfortunately call the Old Testament. And the Gospels in the New Testament are not a replacement of the Old Testament with a new story. It is a continuation of the same story. And I would argue that very little in the New Testament will make any sense to you at all if you don't have a handle on the Old Testament. If you pick up a novel and you just read the last 50 pages and you never read the first 250 pages, you're not going to have a clue what the end of the book is about. It's the same with the Bible. Let's take a look at this. Let's look at the first line of each gospel. Let's just turn to the first line in Matthew. The first line in Matthew is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Let's just stop right there. Does that ring any bells? Now, unfortunately, the English masks this a little bit. But does that ring any bells? Ron, were you about to say something? Exactly. Exactly. You remember when we talked about Genesis... The book of Genesis, it's not divided up into 50 sections. No, it's divided up in 12 sections. The author begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the rest is divided up into 11 sections. Each one of of them begins with, these are the generations of. All of them are worded exactly the same. 
except there's one detail. There's actually one of them that's worded slightly different. Ten of them say, Eletolodot, and then what they're about. These are the generations of. There's one of them, the second one, that actually says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And uh, what Matthew has done here is he's taken that, he left the this off, but he put here exactly what the Septuagint, the Greek translation in Hebrew Bible, uh, he just put, links us right back to Genesis. And there's no way that is just a coincidence. He obviously did that intentionally. Turn to the first line of Mark. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Even if we think that Mark was writing to a largely Gentile audience, the very first thing he does is identify Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. And what is that? We'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. But he's identifying him as this person. Messiah is just Hebrew and Christ is just Greek. It just means anointed one. He's identifying him as the guy that God promised in Old Testament days that he would send to straighten everything out. Let's turn to Luke. He he tells Theophilus uh, why he's writing this. And again, it's so he can know the truth about all the things he's heard about Jesus. So he can have a straight story. And then he begins to talk about Zacharias. And you go down to verse 17. And this angel is announcing to Zacharias that he's going to have a son who will go as a forerunner before this person that God is going to send. Uh, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. What he's doing is Luke starts out talking about this announcement made to Zacharias that you're going to have a son, you're going to name him John. He's talking about John the Baptist. Links it directly back to the end of Malachi, a prophecy about the the forerunner to announce the coming of the kingdom. John, first line in John. Probably most of you can quote the first line of John. Somebody quote the first line of John. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And of course, what John does is he immediately connects Jesus not simply with another prophet or another king, but he links Jesus with God. Yeah. We'll come more of that in a moment. So in every one of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, pick up the story with John the Baptist, who we are explicitly told is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi that God said that he would send Elijah ahead to prepare the way 
for when the kingdom comes. And so uh, every gospel, even the ones written primarily for Gentiles, they're going to demonstrate who Jesus is by identifying him as this guy that all through the Old Testament, Jesus, um, God, has been giving more and more information about somebody that he's going to send to fix all that's wrong in the world and establish righteousness. All of them link it to that. Now, your um, this book at the end of the chapter on Gospels has a really good section. They say it's absolutely crucial that you understand what the people in New Testament times, what they're thinking when they hear the term kingdom of God. And I would commend that to you if you haven't read it, to be sure and read it, that the Gospels largely deal with God, uh, with Jesus revealing to people gradually who He is. Uh, You might just... I don't know how many years it was before I realized that uh, I don't remember in Luke, but in both Mark and Matthew, you're like two thirds of the way through the book before there's an explicit statement about Jesus dying on the cross in order to pay for our sins um, or to redeem people. The writer builds up to that gradually. John, I think, starts out that way. It's like on the first page, he has John the Baptist. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John introduces that the first page. Each writer is a little different how they do it. Um, Here's the thing that's going to happen. Is right off the bat in the Gospels, people are beginning to wonder if Jesus is the Messiah because he starts doing things that were predicted in the Old Testament. Now, remember, sometimes we tend to think of the kingdom of God as simply being the Romans will be kicked out and the Jews will be in charge of their own country. But the Jews all understood that the kingdom of God would be far, far more than that. The Old Testament is chock full of God talking about this new kingdom, that there's going to be healing Uh, People will be healed of their infirmities. There'll be righteousness and justice brought. Wickedness will be done away with. So they're expecting a whole lot more than just getting rid of the Romans and having a Jewish king. They understand that there's a lot more about that that's going to happen. But there is one thing, and someone in here correct me if I'm misunderstanding the Scripture, but I, I think it's pretty clear in Gospel and Acts that while the expectation of the Messiah is they expected him to be able to do miracles. Uh, uh, I mean, after all, Moses did miracles, Joshua did miracles, Elijah, Elisha. They were Old Testament people that God gave the ability to do miracles. They're expecting that. But here's what they weren't expecting. Is they were expecting this guy, and these are all on your handout, all of these prophecies about this guy God was going to send Metaphorically speaking, they were expecting him to be in orange. They were not expecting him to be in blue. They expected a powerful leader like Moses 
They expected a powerful leader like David. They did not expect him to be God. And it completely threw him for a loop. Even until after the, I think, I think as I read the Gospels, even until after the resurrection, the disciples really didn't grasp that. They knew he was the Messiah, but they still thought he was in orange. Like Elijah's in orange. So how are the Gospels written? Okay. For those of you that have skimmed the notes, you're going to think Gibson's notes are boring because he said all the same things as he said about Old Testament narrative. And he says the same thing about Acts that he says about the Gospels. And that's because the same thing is true of all of them. And that is that they're written in story form. The way the Lord has chosen to reveal this stuff to us through the Gospel writers is they basically tell the story of basically what Jesus was doing and we walk along with the disciples and the people with them and experience all this with them as they see more and more of what Jesus says and does and their very dim lights gradually begin to glow only because Jesus is patient with them and keeps showing them. And we get to do that with them. There are other books in the Bible that just simply explain it. Like you go to the book of Hebrews. And so God has revealed it to us in both ways. Depending on what kind of learner you are. If you like learning from explanation, you can go read Hebrews and Romans. If you like learning from stories, go read Acts. Uh, go read the Gospels. Well, of course, we want to do both. Here's another thing uh, that's going to be a big part of how we read the Gospels, and that is each of the Gospels is a coherent unit with a beginning and a middle and an end. What I've written there is each of the four writers very intentionally picked and chose of all the things that they knew about what Jesus had said and done. They picked certain things and left out certain things and arranged them in such a way as to make their point the way they wanted to make it. And any time I talk about the authors understand, I believe in the inspiration of Scripture that God was in somehow superintending that. I don't know how He did it. I don't have a flow chart. I just know He did. Um, okay, we don't have to guess that's what happened. Luke just says that. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. By the way, it's a little bit of an interpretive thing, consecutive order. Um, in an orderly way, there's some question. I don't think Luke's intending that everything's in chronological order. More on that later. To put it in an orderly way, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. His goal, again, is to assure people of the truth of what they've learned. So none of the gospel writers just simply randomly collected a bunch of sayings and stories and just kind of cobbled them up together or even just listed them in chronological order. What he's done is they've arranged them thematically. Thematically, we'll explain this in a minute. We'll look at an example, but but a lot of the events are not necessarily listed in chronological order. 
that shouldn't bother you. We see that a lot in the Old Testament. And it's not because the writers are trying to trick you. They don't claim that they're in chronological order. They're talking about all these things that have occurred um, to develop an understanding of what's going on. And also, I've got a word there. Don't let that freak you out. We're all grown-ups here, including the young people. Y'all are grown-ups. Um, I think one of the things that most throws us reading Gospels and Acts and thinking these incidents are not related is that they're not in what in linguistics would be called contingent temporal sequence relationship. That is, they're not chain of events. Usually when you read in a novel, this happens, and as a consequence, this happens, and that leads to this happening, and as a result, that happens. Well, a lot of times when you're reading along in the Gospels, there'll be a series of events when one is not directly related to the next one in that way. And so we think, oh, we're off to a different topic now. When in fact, they're thematically, they are intimately connected and the writer's developing his thought. We'll look at that in a moment. That's not nearly as complicated as it might sound. And I think most of you, even if you're not conscious of it, you recognize that when you read, when you read the Gospels. Um, Another thing about the Gospels, there's four of them. That shouldn't freak you out. That's not a problem. That's a help. Uh, now, what will happen is people that just start out with the assumption that the Bible is a bunch of nonsense and they were very clumsily, people crafted these stories together and they just couldn't get their story straight. Well, that's not the case at all. We've got four different accounts and my wife dug these out for me. These are four different gospel tracks. And they're presented different ways. They use different vocabulary. They include different things. But you know what? They've really actually all got the same message in them. Does that bother you? It doesn't bother me. Uh, And I think there's two reasons you shouldn't be bothered by the fact that there's four gospel accounts. One is that when you look at them, they all have the same ultimate message. And fourth, depending on what your view of the Scripture is, God chose to do it this way. And so if that bothers you, go talk to him. So, you know, I don't mean that in a flippant way, but there are a lot of things about the way God does things, especially Bible translation, that I've <laughs> I've had conversations with the Lord. And I said, Lord, I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would not handle Bible translation the way you did. And God says, well... David, you're not me. And this is how I'm handling it. Live with it. Now, of course, when we trust the Lord, that's, you know, hopefully we're doing more than simply gritting our teeth. (laughs) You know, we can trust him. All right. I want to use an example. There's precedent in the Old Testament for having two different accounts for a same period of time. Now, I'm going to talk about the Old Testament for a few minutes, and I'm going to ask you to give me the benefit of the doubt when you're starting to wonder, David, today's lesson is about the Gospels and Acts. Why are you talking about the Old Testament? But, li- but stay with me. There's two reasons for I'm doing it. One is just for the precedent. In the Old Testament, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, all four of those go together as one unit. Okay, that's one book. And it covers the period of the monarchy when there were human kings in Egypt. 
Now, there's another set of books, First and Second Chronicles, and they go together, and that's another book. And they cover essentially the same time period. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I think probably fewer Christians have read First and Second Chronicles than have read Leviticus. But anyway, if you've read them, you realize that First and Second Chronicles is quite different from Samuel King's. And I got to thinking about this, and I had to be real careful because I thought, man, I could spend the whole, I could spend hours up here tonight just talking about this. Think about this. In my Bible, and the way my Bible's formatted, Samuel King's is 100 pages long. A fourth of it, 25 pages, deals with Samuel and Saul. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it covers 500 years, and a fourth of it is about the first 40 years. In Chronicles, Samuel's name is mentioned one time, and that's in connection with something he did with David. Um, unless I missed, you guys double check me and come back next week if I'm, if I missed a detail. Samuel is mentioned one time and Saul gets half a page. Now, why in the world would that be? Here's another thing. Chronicles, which in my Bible is about 50 pages long. The first eight and a half pages are genealogies. A sixth of Chronicles is genealogies. Samuel King's doesn't have any genealogies in it. Isn't that weird? I mean, there's a couple of places when they tell you who David's children were, but there really aren't any... uh... Another thing. Samuel King's has two pages describing David's sin with Bathsheba. And we're given considerable um, description of Solomon's sin building pagan temples for his foreign wives. Neither one of those things is even mentioned in Chronicles. Now, isn't that weird? Now, I will say, and we'll look at a verse in Chronicles, that it's obvious that the chronicler knows about that. And in fact, there's a couple of comments in there that suggest he assumes that his readers know about it too. But he didn't put it in the story. Um Let's see. Okay, Samuel King's ends with captivity. And all of the last kings of Judah are dead, either having been killed in battle or executed or assassinated, or they're prisoners in exile. Chronicles ends with God having raised up Cyrus and put it in Cyrus's heart to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and he tells the Jews, if you want to go home, you can. Okay, so what on earth is going on? Well, what's going on is the main point that the writer Samuel Kings is making, his main point, and you can argue with me later if you want to, but his overarching point that we're supposed to get from the book is that when the people rejected God as their king and they wanted a human king like the nations and that's who they were looking to to for security, that that was sin. And God told them how uh, 
deficient human kings were compared to what he would be as their king, and it's going to lead to disaster. And it did. Even the good kings, like David and Samuel, I mean, David and Solomon and Hezekiah, even though God did accomplish wonderful things through them because of his grace when he intervened in their lives, they all failed. They failed miserably, and the nation collapsed. What is the point in Chronicles? Well, Chronicles was, it was finally assembled during or towards the end of the exile. And the chronicler's point is assuring the people who are in exile, who've experienced the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, yes, that the Davidic dynasty is still legitimate and the temple worship and sacrificial system is still legitimate because God has promised that. He's the one that set it up. He promised it. And there is going to be a restoration. Don't despair. So they each have their main point that they're wanting you to learn. And so they pick and choose what they put in there, not because they're trying to trick anybody, but it's because that's their focus. Now, let's tie this back to the New Testament and the Gospels. Assuming that my assessment of the overall meaning of Samuel Kings and Chronicles is correct, we have us a conundrum. Because if the overall message of Samuel Kings is that no human king can provide what you're looking for, security and righteousness, they're all going to fail, just like I told you. You have rejected God as your king and chosen a human instead. It's going to be a disaster, and it was. But in Chronicles, we find out God said, I'm going to set a human king over Israel, a descendant of David, and he's going to establish all righteousness. Well, how can that be? If no human king can provide what they're looking for, because God told them that, and then God says, I'm going to put a descendant of David on the throne and he will accomplish that. Well, you know the answer, don't you? Well, when we come to the Gospels, we're going to find out that that was all still pretty much a fog in the Jews' minds. Now, I think it's interesting all the times that some of the religious leaders come and they try to trip Jesus up and ask him questions. Well, we're going to stump him. We'll ask him a question. Jesus won't know the answer. Well, of course, there's a lot of things happen there. But occasionally he asks them questions in order to reveal to them, because Jesus knows it. He's trying to get them to see that they really don't have a clue what the Old Testament is about. They don't understand it. And so you remember one of the questions he asked them was about David's son. You remember what he asked them about David's son? Or about the son of David. They knew that a descendant of David was going to be the Messiah, the anointed sent one who was going to establish a reign of righteousness. And so Jesus asked them, he says, the descendant of David, the son of David, uh, or no, the Messiah, whose son is he? And they all said, David, son of David. All right. So Jesus says, all right, 
So why does David call him Lord? If he's a descendant, and even even assuming that we don't take Lord to mean God, just uh, an honorific title, still the question is, why would David talk about a descendant as being superior to himself? Well, they didn't have an answer to that. They didn't know. Well, what is the answer? He's God. He's God. That's the whole point. And that's, that is going to be nearly every argument and conversation that goes on in the Gospels is going to be over that. I mean, on the surface, it might be something else. When we lived in Papua New Guinea in the village, after we'd been there a few years, we learned that it didn't matter what the trigger for a fight was. It may be somebody climbed up and got a coconut out of a tree and they guy said, that was my coconut tree. Well, if they're fighting, that's not the reason they're fighting. It had to do with clan issues about girls getting married from one clan to the other. That's actually what they were fighting about. And a lot of times in the gospel, what they're arguing about is really on the surface. Really, the real issue is, is Jesus God or not? So, that's why I took the time to talk about that. One is an example of when biblical writers pick and choose certain events and arrange them to make a point, and another gospel writer picks and chooses other events or even some of the same events and arranges them slightly different because I might be making a slightly different point. Nobody's tricking you. Nobody's lying to you. That's just God had them present it that way. And we do the same thing all the time. So, um, by the way, if you heard Terry's sermon Sunday, I thought that was fabulous. I, I kept listening to his message and thinking how much of my message tonight was in his sermon. Um, so, how do we read the Gospels? Well, assuming that a lot of what I said is true about the goal of the Gospels and how they're written, then that should suggest how we should read them and interpret them. And that is, if the writer, in fact, chose certain teachings and events uh, in Jesus' time on earth and arranged them in order to build a case for what he wants to build, then that's how we should read it. We should just start at the beginning and read through in order and come to the end and let the writer tell us what he wants us to know. And we would want to read each gospel separately. In other words, let Matthew tell the story the way he wants to tell the story to make his point. Let Mark tell the story the way God had him tell the story to teach it the way he wanted to teach it. Um... And so on with Luke and John. I'm actually going to read a line. I jumped out. I jumped up and down when I read this in the textbook um, because he was just singing my song. Uh, when he's talking about, actually, he's talking about Acts, but uh, and I have a place in your notes on page 115. He says, as always, the first step one does is to read. He's talking about reading Acts, but he would say this about any book of the Bible. 
the first step one does is to read preferably the whole book in one sitting. Uh, most of the books of the Bible you can read in one sitting a lot easier than you might think. But I'm going to pitch again. Spend some money and get a Bible that doesn't have the chapter and verse markings in the text. It's amazing how much easier it is to read and how much faster. Uh, that's a benefit I did not expect is how much faster you can read if it's not in there. Um, Anyway, preferably be the whole book in one sitting. As you read, learn to make observations, ask questions. The problem with making observations and asking questions as you read Acts, of course, is that the narrative is so engrossing that one frequently simply forgets to ask the exegetical question. Well, I'm getting ahead on Acts, but this is where I, I made all my marks. He said, so as before, if we're to give you an assignment, it would look like this. Read Acts all the way through in one or two sittings. And then two, as you read, make mental notes, key places, recurring motifs, obvious movement of the story. Then verse uh, number three. Now go back and skim read and jot down the references, your previous observations. And then number four, ask yourself, why did Wright loot this book and consider why this particular narrative has been included? I do a lot of skim reading once I've read a book two, three, four, five times and I'm familiar with it, there's a lot of times when I'll just skim through because what I'm doing is I'm following the flow of the story. And once you get familiar with it, it's amazing how fast you can read a book like Mark and follow the story. And the other thing, at least for me, maybe it won't work for you, the other thing that's amazing to me is how many tiny little details will leap off the page when you do that. That a lot of times, if you've taken five months to read through a book that's only 12 pages long, you'll miss, whereas if you just skim through it, all of a sudden you'll realize, oh, this word has occurred six times, this particular phrase, and each time it does, something happens. And that kind of thing, it's surprising how many of those kind of things will leap out at you when you just skim through the whole story. Just, uh, I'm assuming that you have pretty good familiarity with it. Read through it, and then you go back and you start doing all these detailed things, word studies, look very carefully. Uh, don't ever think when I'm up here talking about reading the whole story that I'm saying there's not a place for all that detailed study. I'm just emphasizing the side that I think in my training got um, slighted. Um, I had how to do detail study up to here, and I could, and I do it. I do that. But uh, it's amazing how much you can learn by just read the story like it's a story. Okay, so let's do some examples. We're going to take um, Mark. We're going to do two things. First, we're going to do is just look at Mark, and we're going to do that. We're going to just kind of skim through and see the flow of the story and begin to realize what Mark has done. Then after that, we'll take a particular incident and look at that and see how we need to interpret it in light of what it's doing in the story. Um, I'm going to be spending most of our time on the Gospels and only a little bit of time in Acts because everything I'm saying about the Gospels applies to Acts. There's only a couple of things that are special about Acts that I'll mention when we get to that. So turn to Mark. 
the beginning of Mark. <clears throat> okay, and as we scan through, we see in the first 12 verses on the first page, Mark just tells us this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, that is the anointed one, the Son of God. And then what he does is he shows us that, uh, okay, Mark has told us who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. Then he tells us that um, John the Baptist points him out. This is the guy. And then finally at the end, God the Father himself says to Jesus, you're my beloved son. So if Mark just starts out with three people telling us who Jesus is. So now let's begin the story in verse 14. Um, after John's taken into custody, Jesus goes out and he begins, uh, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That is loaded with all kinds of assumptions that the Israelites who heard that would think that meant. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The idea of repentance certainly isn't new to the Jews. But the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what is their expectation? They know about creation and the fall. And in this age, the world's a mess. They knew it just as well as we do. But throughout the Old Testament, God has said there's going to be a kingdom is going to come. I'm going to send my anointed one and he's going to establish my kingdom that will be eternal. And there's all kinds of stuff we've already mentioned about restoring justice and righteousness, restoring health to people, making people well. And so they assume this age is going to end and the new age is going to start. Okay, so he announces that the kingdom is going to go, and then he begins calling people, and he says, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. Now, this is a major theme introduced right at the beginning. When Jesus calls people to enter the kingdom, it's an automatic part of being a member of the kingdom is you're also a worker for the kingdom. The two go together. This isn't just applied to the apostles. That's going to be a theme throughout Gospels and Acts. It, it applies in a particular way to the apostles, but all through here, discipleship will always be a part of being part of the kingdom. So he calls them, and then what Jesus does, the next few stories, Jesus begins to demonstrate his power, his messianic power to restore people's infirmities, to, uh, to make people well which is what they're expecting from the Messiah. He is also asserting his authority to tell people what's right and wrong. He's asserting his kingship. That's a big deal. And the crowds are ecstatic. He's got lots of people coming after him. They're all excited about it. Um, and so all of these crowds are coming. But something happens. Again, group thematically in two one, and following on to um, three twelve, there's a collection of five incidents. Bam, 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 bam. And what they are is their opposition 
They are a rejection of Jesus' authority, challenging his authority in opposition to him. And that's why I say these things aren't necessarily in chronological order, and one doesn't necessarily cause the next one, but they're thematically grouped together. Um, All of a sudden, we have five stories relating to opposition. Each one involves a question. Um, The the fifth one is an implied question, uh, questioning Jesus' authority. So then, in the middle of chapter 3, Jesus again, in calling people to be his disciples, he names the 12. He picks out 12 in particular that he's going to send out to help do the work of the kingdom. Now, he, according to Mark, he's, he's not sending them out yet. He's still preparing them, but he at least identifies them. Okay, that's important. He identifies them. But then again, we have three different situations where we see a range of responses to what Jesus is teaching. Even his family, they have questions about him. Some people think he's, is this where he's, uh, yeah, he's cast, his power comes from the devil. There's all these responses. So what comes next? It looks unrelated, but it's not. What comes next is Jesus teaches a series of parables. But what are these parables all about? There's the parable of the soils, uh, parable of the, uh, the seed, sown seed, parable of the mustard seed. What is Jesus doing? Okay, he's calling people to join the kingdom. He's called the disciples. He set them apart and he said, I'm, I'm going to send you out to proclaim the kingdom. But they're saying that they're surrounded by opposition and there's a lot of people rejecting it. Well, what's going wrong? I mean, what's going on? It appears that God's plan isn't working. So what Jesus does is he gives a series of parables, first of the soils. And what he's doing is he is describing and explaining the variety of responses to this message about the kingdom. And then he gives two parables about the sown seed and about the mustard seed. And what's the point? God's kingdom is going to grow. It doesn't matter how much opposition there is. And it doesn't matter that you don't understand how it's going to happen. When you plant seed, you don't understand it. You just plant it and it grows. God's kingdom is going to grow. And so you see how Mark is thematically, he's building all of this. There's a flow and a movement to this story. This is not 14 separate things that are unrelated. Well, the disciples should be encouraged now. They're out in the boat and there's a storm. Ah! Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? (laughs) Brother, you don't know the half of it. Jesus quiets the storm. The wind died. They said, man. Jesus says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, I'm going to take exception. I don't even remember which textbook it is. If you read the textbook... They don't think that this event here is connected with what came before. They think it's what's connected with what comes after. Well, I think he's mistaken. Because what does Jesus say? Do you still have no faith? That's, I checked the Greek just to make sure it's straight. That's a good translation. Do you not yet have faith? Does that sound like he's looking back? 
He is. Jesus, uh, Jesus is looking back. With all you've already seen and with all I've already told you, do you still not have faith? Well, hold that and flip. Yes. Yes. Thank you. That's right. Thank you for specifying that. Yes. Because we don't trust him when we first get to know him, and then we do our sanctification process. We start to learn to trust him. It's like a cycle of this. Yes. Skip on to towards the end of chapter six. Now, what happens between that incident in the boat? They get to shore and they get out of the boat. And what happens is it's kind of a repeat of the first section. Jesus heals some more people. He teaches some more. He's demonstrating His power. He's asserting His authority. He's asserting His authority by teaching the truth. And now what He does, instead of telling the disciples that the kingdom will grow, what He does is He gives them an object lesson. Jesus is concerned um, in the middle of chapter 6 I'm not sure where I am here. Yeah, towards the end, middle or end of chapter 6. We've gone through another cycle of demonstration of power, asserting of authority. This time, instead of telling parables, what Jesus does is He looks around and He tells His disciples, man, there are thousands of people here and they're hungry. I think we should do something about it. Okay, as the Messiah, that's one of the things that the Anointed One is going to do. He's going to care for His subjects. But, as we said right from about the fifth sentence, joining the kingdom of God means you join the team and God uses you to accomplish, to build the kingdom. So what Jesus says is, I need to feed these people. And what do the disciples say? Well, where's the store? We don't have any food. So, what does Jesus say? He says, you feed them. Well, how are we going to do that? So we got two things that again go together. We see the Messiah demonstrating his power to provide what people need, but also as he calls his servants to be part of this kingdom building and participate in this, he is going to give them what they need to accomplish the work he gives them. He's not going to tell them to do something and they're not given the ability to do it. They go hand in hand. So, now they've got it. And they get in the boat. And there's another storm. And they get scared again. But immediately he spoke with them and said, Take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. Now listen to what Mark says. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Okay, see, this is the second time when they've had all this exposure to seeing what Jesus was doing, all these stories, all the things he had taught. And they're still not getting it. 
See this, just like in the first time in the boat, it's looking back. They still didn't have faith. Here they hadn't gained any insight from what had happened. Okay. Hold your finger there and go to, not very far this time, the middle of chapter 8. They're in the boat again. Okay, what's happened between the boat we just read and the boat we're going to in the middle of chapter 8? Well, some more. There's more healing. It's a demonstration of His power as the Messiah to restore people. There's an assertion of His authority to teach, declare what's right or wrong. And, since these guys are just as slow and dull-witted as we are, He gives them another object lesson. In fact, He gives them the same object lesson a second time. Look at all these people. They're hungry. Oh, let's see. Yeah. And they said, well, where are we going to get food in a desolate place like this? This is one of the places where skimming is where it jumped out at me. This whole, this three panel thing. The same words. This is the place Jesus fed them last time was a desolate place. Now they're in another desolate place. Where are we going to get food? How many loaves do you have? You know, I wonder at what point a light came on <laughs> with the disciples. Oh, we've been here before, haven't we? So he feeds them. So they get in the boat. They're in the boat again. The boat's a big deal in Mark's gospel. Anyway, they're in the boat. And what occurs to the disciples? Yeah. Jesus is trying to teach them about righteousness in the kingdom, and they're doing what you and I do. We're thinking about our next meal. And they don't have any food. Look what Jesus says. Why are you talking about you don't have any bread? Do you still not see? It's almost word for word the same thing that got said <laughs> the first time. Do you still not get it? You've got eyes, can't you see? You've got ears, can't you hear? So, he goes over it with them. Do you not yet understand? Well, the next thing that happens... Jesus heals the guy who's blind, physically blind. And then the next thing, there's a turning point in the gospel where Peter, where, uh, you know, they're walking along and Jesus says, well, who do people say that I am? Well, some people think this, some people think that. Think Maybe you're this guy, maybe you're one of these prophets. But the important question is, who do you say I am? doesn't matter that much to you. It's not as important what Ron thinks as what you think. And he says, well, you're the Messiah. Now, Mark doesn't tell us, but Matthew points out, Matthew just says that Jesus said, well, you didn't figure this out. God revealed this to you. But Mark's told a story where clearly that's what's going on. Now, the disciples still don't really grasp what it means yet to be the Messiah. But at this point, the story takes a complete turn. Major, major turn at this point. Jesus has been revealing His power to restore people and His authority to teach and declare what's right or wrong and His ability as the Messiah to provide what people are deficient in. But now there's a huge shift. 
that he hasn't mentioned yet before. Threw everybody for a loop. They didn't get it. I'm going to be arrested and executed. That's, that's not part of the plan, is it? And they don't get it. Now, just like in the first section, there were three, there were three episodes of learning about Jesus and then being tested in the boat, learning about Jesus, testing the boat, learning about Jesus, testing the boat, and then finally there's this turning point. We're going to see the same thing in the next section, except now each section starts with Jesus telling them three times. He tells them, I'm going to be arrested and killed, and on the third day I'm going to be raised. And each of those three times, the disciples argue. They either argue with him or they argue with each other. And all these arguments are about who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who's got authority? And all the time, what is Jesus trying to get through to them? True love means service. And it's not until the third time that he tells them he's going to die on the cross. And he doesn't even tell them initially until they once again, they start jockeying for position in the kingdom that he tells them why he's going to die. It's because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And if you're going to be my disciple, that's the way you need to think. Because that's the way my father thinks. And that's the way his children think. Blew them away. Wait for my eyes to clear here. What comes next? So, I'm going to stop there with Mark. But my point that I want to make wasn't really my intention to teach Mark. But that every one of the Gospels is written that way. And so is Acts. Because they're not written the way we typically write a novel or a short story it looks like just a random collection of events and teachings. But they're not. They're very much strung together in order. And if you will just read them, you have to ignore the chapter divisions because they're in the section headings because they rarely correspond with actual logical sections. Read the story. Just read it through like, like you expect it to make sense. That's the hardest part. That's the biggest problem I have with the Papua New Guineans because they won't read it because they don't expect books to make sense. Because they're always reading books in a second language they don't understand well, so they don't expect books to make sense. Um, is to try to get them to read it, okay? So, I'll beat that horse. So, each of these incidents, individual incidents then, Actually, the main thing that the writer is trying to teach us is probably not the circumstances or the context of that actual incident. The main point to be learned from it is usually what that incident is doing in the story as a whole. That's actually the main thing we need to learn. Now, I'm not claiming that the details don't have something for us to learn from, but I'm saying that's often not the main point. So... Uh, I've listed some examples at the top of page four. Um, I'll just mention one because it's easy to give. It's not in the Gospels, but it's in Jude. In Jude, Jude makes a comment about angels 
who did not keep their proper abode and they're being held in chains for in darkness for something thrown in judgment or something. Well, you can get all wound up trying to figure out who those people are. I kind of, or who those angels are. You know, I have, I have an idea maybe of who they are, but I'm going to suggest that it doesn't actually matter very much. Because is Jude teaching us about angels who are in bonds? Is that the point? Someone that happens to be familiar with Jude, why does he even mention those guys? You remember? What's the what's the overarching thing? Jude's a little short letters, one page. Aren't they examples of rebellious They are. They are an example. What is that an example of? Specifically, false yeah, false teachers. But what what's the point of them being in bonds? What's the point Jude is making? God is judging. Yeah, God is judging them. The point of Jude is Jude is encouraging believers, the the way he puts it is, keep yourselves in the love of God. In other words, what he's saying is, trust God. It's like when you tell your 15-year-old daughter that wants to run away from home, why go out there and live with a gang? Let your parents take care of you. Let us take care of you. We love you. We trust you. What we tell you is good for you. And Jude is encouraging them to do that. And he's talking about these false teachers. Everything about them is wicked. He gives Old Testament examples of people who have wicked motives. And he says that's what the false teachers are like. He gives examples from the Old Testament of people who have wicked character and behavior. And he gives those as examples. He said that's what those false teachers are like. And he gives three examples of how God judges people like that. People that don't keep their proper allotted place that God has assigned to them, God judges them. And so, if you follow what I'm saying, that's not, that particular thing in there is not teaching about angels, and so we don't get so wound up trying to figure out exactly who they are, where those are the people back in Noah's day, or what was that, that we miss what the actual point is that Jude is making. Does that make sense? We'll skip 1 Corinthians. Let's turn to Matthew 19. We'll get to the Gospels. I picked two examples here, and uh, if Keith was here, he'd be laughing at me because the second example backfired on me one time, and we talked about it. Uh, Matthew 19. Matthew is not structured the same way Mark is. What Matthew does is Matthew is clearly there's an introduction and a conclusion. It's clearly in five sections, and each section starts out with a collection of stories about things Jesus did, and then the second part of each section is largely a collection of Jesus' teachings. And each one of those five sections kind of has a focus or a theme on either the kingdom or God or Jesus restoring people to the kingdom or discipleship, something like that. So we're in the middle of one of those sections. So in Matthew 19.21... Jesus tells this guy he wants to know how to get into heaven. He says, um, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. I'm going to intentionally stop before I finish the sentence. Okay. So, 
If you haven't, I'm sure you're aware that through the centuries there's always been a question of what do Christians do with personal wealth? Now, it obviously appears here that whatever wealth you have that you should dispense with and give your money away, right? Is, is that the point here? Even if we go ahead and add the next one, the next finish the sentence, uh, give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That's right. Go someplace. That's right. Well, when you read the whole story, of course, he's coming. How do I obtain eternal life? By the way, this is a good place to see how many different expressions all are synonymous with get eternal life. Enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't remember how many of them are here. Enter into life. Obtain eternal life. Um, have treasure in heaven. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, okay, obviously they're talking about salvation. So, without taking half an hour to defend my position, I might just ask you, when Jesus has come to this guy and asked how to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, well, um, keep the commandments. And the guy says, which ones? And he li- Jesus himself lists a bunch of the commandments. And he says, well, I have. But what am I still lacking? It's interesting to me that this guy knows that he's still lacking something. I mean, he must have think, I've been obeying the law, but maybe there was, okay, still what I'm lacking. So what is actually the main point of what Jesus says? If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What's actually the main part of what Jesus in his answer? Yeah. Come follow me. The point is come follow me. It just happens that this, for this particular guy, what was keeping him from doing it? What was his idol? It was his stuff. Exactly. And so what you'll find throughout the Gospels is there's these, there'll be these, I started to use the word confrontations. I'll use interactions that Jesus has with people that, often Jesus will immediately circle around and pinpoint to actually what's going on in their heart. A lot of times when, especially when the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to trip Jesus up, they'll ask him a question, but actually it's very superficial. What's actually going on in their heart is something different, and Jesus will go straight to the heart. But what we don't want to do is think what Matthew is doing in relating this story. He's not teaching us about what to do with wealth other than if that's what's standing between you and trusting in Jesus, then you better get rid of it. Let's back up because this is still in the same section. We're going to look at another example and what becomes what comes between back up to the beginning of chapter nineteen. What become what comes between the example we're about to look at and the one we just looked at about the rich young ruler, is Jesus talking about the children. You need to come to me like the children do. It's significant. Okay. So, <clears throat> this is the one that Keith would laugh at me if he knew I were using this one. Look, chapter 19, verse 9. 
I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, I'm going to ask you not to tune me out. The reason Keith laughed at me is one time I was using this as an example of how to interpret the Scripture or how people get tripped up and misinterpret things. And uh, Keith was laughing because it became apparent in the class that as soon as the word divorce is mentioned, three-fourths of the audience immediately tune you out because that's a very, it's a very painful subject. There's not a person in this room who, if you haven't been through divorce, some of your loved ones have. Your parents, your children, okay? It's a painful thing. And it's what's even more painful is people arguing about it. But that's part of the reason I want to use this as an example is to show how we can get lost looking at the particular situation that's being addressed and miss what actual the main point is that Matthew is making here. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to take the time to tell you a story. This is what the example I used when I used this before and Keith laughed at me. I actually, I've got a friend. He's also an American who works in Papua New Guinea and he's a Bible translator. And, uh, and we, the group of us were sitting around eating one time, and he quoted this verse. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, marries another woman, commits adultery. And he was talking about how some of the things Jesus says just don't make any sense and you can't understand it. And he quoted this verse, and he said, see, if you're divorced, then it's not adultery. And I can almost quote him exactly. He said, he said, uh, that doesn't make any sense. Just don't even go there. Well, what he was doing, and this is where you can get into trap doing word studies. This guy happens to be an engineer, not to step on anybody's toes. <laughs> but there are a lot of science and engineering people in Bible translation because it's a technical field and it makes sense, doesn't it? And a lot of good translators. But what he does is he'll take an individual sentence and try to handle it like it's a mathematical formula and each word has a numerical value. And when he, when he does the math, he comes up with, well, if you're divorced, then when you remarry, it's not adultery. So that does, we don't know what Jesus meant. Just don't go there. That's his exact words. Okay. What started out this conversation where Jesus ends up saying that? We'll go back to verse 1. Verse 2, I'm sorry. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? The question is, can Dave just decide for whatever reason he wants to, he's tired of Cece, get rid of her? That's the question. Now Jesus answers, they don't like his answer. And so he res- they say, well, then why did Moses say that you could give a certificate of divorce? Well, it's because of the hardness of your heart. It's never intended to be that way. I'm telling you, again, the Messiah is asserting his authority as the king. So what's actually the main point going on here? The surface issue is about marriage. And when is divorce allowed in God's view? 
But the point Matthew is making in this conversation is who gets to decide? Who gets to decide what are legitimate grounds to break a marriage or not? It starts out with them saying who? Anybody. Well, the men, not you women. But any man can decide for any reason he wants to. And what's Jesus' response? God. God is the one who gets to decide what's a divorce or not. And so when he says anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, what is he saying? At least a lot, if not all, of your divorces are not valid. Now, see, what my friend did, and if you're not too hung up on divorce and you're getting the overall subject here, what my friend did when he said that doesn't make any sense, if you're divorced and remarried, then it's not adultery. Don't go there. He was doing exactly the same thing that the Pharisees were doing. He is defining divorce and remarriage according to his culture and his ideas, and it doesn't fit with what Jesus said, so he rejected it. Now, to put your minds at ease, actually, it, yes. It's almost like saying if you lust after someone, it's the same as adultery. So, in other words, if you haven't done what God commanded, it's adultery. Essentially, just as, I don't know if I'm making a bad connection there, but, um, you know, am I guilty of adultery? Mm-hmm. And they're really violating God's standard. And God's standard is, mm-hmm. right? So ultimately, just as if you lusted, you're doing adultery. It's not like, it, well, you're doing adultery too because you're not doing what God required. Right. And those are just, those are the same issue just coming from different directions. And that is, God is the one who gets to decide whether what I'm doing in my mind is sin or not. Not me. I can come up with all kinds of justification for sinning in my mind or committing the act. Papua New Guineans had some, they had some amazing ways they would. I won't tell it this is to their young people in the room. Um, but it's the same issue. The issue, it, the main thing to get here is who gets to decide. That's actually the issue. And when you read this particular section in Matthew, uh, this one of the five sections, both the narrative and then the um, the discourse part was the collection of Jesus' teaching. That's a main, really the main issue that's going on is, is a disciple willing to allow, how do I say this, acknowledge the Messiah's authority that he is the one that gets to decide what's right or wrong. And if it doesn't fit the way I think or my culture or my state or federal government's laws, well, I can just get over it. I can decide to follow the Lord. Now, I'll go ahead and say, I'm not talking out of school, that, um, you know, even in Grace Bible Church, 
this thing where he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for porneia is the Greek word, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Um, even among a lot of the people here at Grace Bible Church, there's going to be a range of understanding about just what this is. And uh, even among the leadership, there's a range of understanding about some of the details about what constitutes porneia here. Also, does not being bound, and the Pauline exception, does not being bound simply mean that you're free to separate without contesting the separation, but it doesn't mean you're free to remarry, or does it mean you are free to remarry? So, even among us, as brothers and sisters in Grace Bible Church, who have an earnest desire to, to know the Scripture, and even among the leadership, there may be a little bit of a range of understanding the details here and about how to apply it. But I can tell you one thing about our leadership and our elders, that while they may have some range in the details, they are all absolutely committed to the fact that it is God who gets to decide. And their earnest desire is to know as well as they can from Scripture with all the various situations that we can come up with in our own lives and our families' lives that are always, they can be complicated and we're trying to figure out how to handle it. And it's hard to navigate that ultimate commitment of what Matthew is actually after. Wherever you end up, we're going to let Jesus tell us about marriage. And whether or not my lusting or my, you know, what I'm doing, whether that's sin or I want to excuse it, we're going to let Jesus tell us what's sin and what's not. Not our culture. So that's the point. All right. So. Going from Gospels. Well, let me back up just a little bit. I've already said that a lot of what the Gospels are dealing with is it would really only take about three paragraphs to say who Jesus is and what he did, so believe in him. But what we get is several pages of getting to walk with the disciples through their growing understanding of who Jesus is and what it actually means to be a disciple. Because we need to grow in that too. We need to grow in our appreciation of what all that actually means. If we're actually going to be Jesus' disciple, what does that really mean? And we can see that. Now, one of the other big things that really threw them is I already mentioned here. They had a much fuller idea of what the kingdom of God was and I think we tend to give the Jews credit for Okay, they were expecting all kinds of stuff. You remember when, uh, well, for one thing, when Jesus was in Nazareth and he read from the scripture and he read it and he closed it and he said, this has been fulfilled. You remember what he read? Isaiah 61, and it was about the coming of the kingdom. And it's pretty amazing things. Um, also, um, my mind blanked out and I didn't make myself a note. There's another place that that same thing, that same passage is referred to. Um, oh, when John the Baptist was in prison 
And he sent some of his disciples. Go ask Jesus, is he the expected guy? There's all kinds of questions about why John the Baptist did that. But anyway, he sent some of his disciples to go, Jesus, are you the one we're expecting? And what did Jesus tell the guys to go back and tell John? Tell him what you saw. And he quotes the same thing. I'm doing these amazing things. So, here comes Jesus. He's doing all of that and more. And so they're expecting this age to end and the kingdom to start. But by golly, who saw this coming? Jesus comes and says, the kingdom is at hand. It's beginning. Enter the kingdom. And then he dies and he leaves. And this age just keeps going. So here's what's hard for you and me to get our head around. Is that the kingdom of God has begun. But this age is still going. I don't think, I'm not even sure, even when I know that's what's going on, I don't think I can look back in the Old Testament and claim that I would have been able to predict that. I don't know, maybe, maybe you have a different view of it. But they clearly threw them off. Now, there's at some point when the Messiah is going to return, and the next time he comes, it's going to look a whole lot more like what they were expecting as far as what it appears to us in Revelation. So what we've got going on is you and I are here. When we're believers, we are part of the kingdom of God which has begun, and yet this age is still continuing And we're here in the middle. And that's a major, major theme of a lot of Paul's letters, especially Paul. Um, Different subject. So Acts, the book of Acts. Everything that I said about the Gospels applies to Acts. Uh, Except I would say probably it's quite a bit more chronological it's it's more apparent that it's one event to the next event to the next event. But again, there's very much a flow. Uh, one thing that's really cool is if you get a Bible, or if you can, if you can, you're a better man than I am, if you can read a book and ignore the chapter breaks. But if you can, or if you get a Bible that doesn't have them in there, just sit down and read Acts like a story. And it's amazing. It is very fast-paced. Very action-packed. And I mean it moves. And it's very exciting. Um, And if you read it that way, but the one thing I would want to say about Acts is Acts, um, I have in here, let's see, on page 5, excuse me, page 4. I'm just going to read what I wrote here. I know you can read. First, I put a quote from one of the textbooks. And I said, The purpose of Acts is to give believers, especially Gentile believers, an understanding of and an assurance regarding the validity of the spread of the good news of the kingdom of God among Gentiles and the nature of the rejection of the Messiah by the bulk of the nation Israel. When God establishes his kingdom and it starts spreading, it doesn't look like what people expected. Throughout all of history, it 
at any given point in history, it often looks like God is losing. But He's not. And Acts is, a, uh, is the story of how God is working. And the primary thing that's going on in Acts is showing the validity of how this good news about the kingdom being at hand, repent and believe, is how the Gentiles are going to be incorporated into this on an equal footing with the Jews. And in fact, the Jews are not going to be allowed in simply because they're Jews. It's hard for us, being Gentiles this far down the track, to realize what a big issue that is. But you might think about the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of those books only covers about three years. Okay, there's a little bit of mention about Jesus' birth and a little deal when he was 12 years old. But basically they cover three years. Acts covers a period of roughly 30 years. And even in the Jerusalem Council, which is in chapter 15, someone know offhand, uh, Cece, I know you've spent a lot of time in Acts. From the beginning of Acts, uh, at the death and resurrection, and Jesus goes back to heaven, until the Jerusalem Council, when they're still trying to sort this thing out about the Gentiles, how far down the track are we? I think it's around 12 or 15 years. Yeah, we're 12 or 15 years down the road and the Jews are still struggling with this. Um, And what Acts is focusing on, it's the main thing in every incident, is that God is causing these things to happen by the Holy Spirit to take out the good news of Jesus Christ who died as an atonement for our sins. And just like some of the incidents in the Gospels, the particular context that it occurs in may not be particularly important in not trying to teach us about that. It's just the situation in which um, God worked to demonstrate that he's bringing Gentiles into the church. Um, you ever thought about the fact that there were a lot of places that Paul would go and he would stay you know, anywhere from several months to a year and a half to three years teaching. Teaching what? Have you ever thought about in the book of Acts, there's very little in the book of Acts about what it is the apostles were teaching other than the gospel itself. That's in there. But the rest of what they were teaching, it's not in Acts because that's not what Acts is for. Acts is not a catalog of a church manual about how to run a church or anything like that. It's the story of the power of God building His church. Where is all the teaching about what the apostles, what it is when they stayed somewhere for three years in teaching, where do we find what it is they were teaching the churches? In the epistles. Yeah, in the epistles. That's where all that stuff is. Uh, there's not much of it in the Gospels either. Because the Gospel was telling the disciples... All right, there's going to come a time when the Holy Spirit is going to bring to remembrance all the things I've been teaching you. Anyway, all that shows up later in the epistles. So when you read Acts, you don't want to get hung up on a particular situation and miss what's going on. Okay, one example and we'll stop. The beginning of Acts, the apostles are sitting up there uh, in and Jesus gives them their assignment. Beginning of Acts. Uh, 
We're told that Jesus appeared to the disciples and by many convincing proofs, they understand that he died and was resurrected and went to heaven. And they understand now that he is the son of God, that he's not just a man and what he's done. And so as witnesses, Jesus tells them, okay, you are going to be my witnesses. You're going to go out and tell people about what you were eyewitnesses of. But you're not going to have to do it on your own, just like when he provided the food for them to feed the 5,000. He said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and empower you to do this. So he gives them this assignment. Okay, then we have this story about picking Matthias. And we've got this thing about, okay, we need to replace Judas. And then we've got the whole thing with casting lots and stuff like that. Is the point of that how to pick church leaders? Okay, I'm pretty sure only apostles. Okay, connect, connect, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think this is the last time casting lots is ever mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, it's not mentioned anywhere else in Acts or in the instructions to the church in the epistles. God did, in fact, do this a lot in the Old Testament. All right. So that's valid. So why is the story about Matthias in there? Well, if you know how these stories are written, I think the reason it's in there is it gives Luke another opportunity to tell you what is an apostle. What are the qualifications for being an apostle? Who gets to choose who is an apostle? And what is their mission? So I think that's the reason that... uh, Luke has put this in here. Is it simply a repeat of the first half of the chapter? And it underlines what apostles are, where they get their power, and what their mission is. Because that's what the rest of the book of Acts is about. And Luke is constantly going to be focusing on the apostles' authority and where it comes from and where their power comes from. It's from the Holy Spirit. The fact that Matthias is never mentioned again in the rest of Acts doesn't matter because that's not the point of the story. How he was chosen with casting lots doesn't matter. The point is God superintended that and they had God choose Matthias. They didn't choose him. So that once again is an example that each individual incident has a role to play in the overall story. And the overall story is actually the main point. Think about it because I'm guilty of this because I've been to seminary and I've learned to do all this fancy stuff and I can easily do what the Pharisees and Sadducees do and that's strain gnats and swallow camels. And I can analyze details to the nth degree and I can come up with all kinds of rules about marriage and divorce and adultery and what to do with finances. But it always comes back to the main thing. The details are not as important as... Do I actually trust the Messiah? And am I going to be willing to submit to Him however well I understand or misunderstand or not clear? The real issue, God's looking at my heart, not necessarily how accurately did I analyze a rule. But am I trusting the servant? Let's pray. Oh, yes. Show them who he had chosen. Exactly. That's 
I think that's the point. That's the point of the story. The point of the story is not should we cast lots next time we want to select deacons. That's right. God, Jesus. Because Barnabas is referred to as an apostle later. Yeah. You could you could argue why Paul's an apostle and how he was appointed. Mm-hmm. But I don't know where you get that for Barnabas. But Barnabas is in Acts referred to as an apostle. So. Yeah, that's another one of those places where apostle is actually a very generic word. And sometimes it's referring to, it's a technical term referring to a specific group. And sometimes it's used more loosely. That's my understanding. Anyway. Let's pray. Oh, yes. You know, I wanted to say right now we're in no man's land. But that's not actually what it is, is it? Right, and so yeah, it has started. We are in it now. Yeah. Right? And so, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say when he uh, is it in his high priestly prayer? When he says his disciples, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. We live here, but where should our minds be? Where should our focus be? Now, I would say. Not only is this true for the kingdom in Christ's earthly reign on the earth, that this final consummation of righteousness and there's no sickness and no death, all of this is future. That is true in our personal lives also, isn't it? Because we are saved, but there's a sense in which our restoration is not complete. We're still in our mortal bodies. We still have our old self that will tend to pull us back to this manner of life. So a big part of the epistles is explaining how we navigate this when we keep having this pull to go back this way when we belong up here. What does that look like? That's what the bulk of the epistles are about. Maybe not the bulk. It is a part of it. No. The other people are getting antsy to leave. I'll pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that uh, you've given your word to be a light to us and not a confusion. Lord, we realize just like uh, everyone else in the, all the characters in the Bible, we're pretty slow. Your ways are above our ways and uh, we can't grasp them if you don't help us understand it. Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit, the... Um, the one who comes along to help us, uh, can help us grasp this, not just to understand it and outline it on the whiteboard, but that you would be at work in our hearts to actually respond in trust, to believe you, to recognize that what you told Eve in the garden about that tree was actually for her good, and you were just in telling her that. Lord, help us have that attitude when you give us instructions that seem wonky to us or that we don't like it, that we can trust you, that you're our Father. Lord, we thank you that you've uh, given us the Gospels and Acts. Help us read them with understanding and give us your light. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.